0: Welcome to Season 3 of American Political History, Conformity, War, and Liberty. Anne Hutchinson The first steps of admonition was to separate off the weakest non-conformers, pressure them back into conformity, making them apologize, admit their errors, and become agents of conformity, who would then show their conformity by pressuring the remaining non-conformers. Winthrop first pressured John Cotton for allowing these deviations inside of the Church of Boston. He attacked this covenant of free grace without works for making passive Christians. And he linked the supposition that one could live a moral life and get salvation without adherence to the Church's doctrines of works on bordering on preaching of antinomianism. The extreme of antinomianism. And the fear that the Puritans had for this extreme comes from the city of Munster and what happened there 100 years before. That German town had been taken over by Anti-Baptists, who declaring their direct, and from the Puritan point of view, unscripturally anchored beliefs in God, they declared they were only ruled by their consciences, not laws, and because of this unleashing of their consciences, they went far beyond rejecting simply infant baptism, which had sparked the issue in Munster, They instead started to use violence against anyone that rejected their views based on their individual consciences. It was chaos, which led to the killing of those outside of the mob's view of Christianity and eventually the cleansing of everyone in the town of Munster by a Catholic army. Those that believed their conscience above laws were antinomians, and Munster was all the proof that anyone needed of the extreme danger of these types of beliefs. With pressure mounting, John Cotton submitted to his error and the bay's interpretation of the covenant of works over free grace. Wheelwright, too, initially agreed to conform to the bay's position. This left Anne Hutchinson, who refused to abandon her beliefs for the sake of the magistrate's conformity. Anne continued to promote this idea of free grace, rejecting the notion that works and learned study could save someone alone. For it was faith in God alone that saved someone, and grace was freely given by God accepting humanity's flaws. For the Bible had no checklist of free works necessary for salvation. Measuring works moved the selection of salvation from God's grace to the judgment of humans on what good and necessary works are. And quoted Romans 6.14, For sin shall not be your master, because you are not under law, but under grace. Whispers of Anne's antinomianism swirled in New England. Winthrop asked for a day of fasting to calm the emotions of this debate over grace and works. And on the requested fast day, John Wheelwright would give a sermon in the Boston church rejecting the prioritization of works over free grace. For this preaching, Wheelwright would be called to court where he would be banished from the commonwealth for the guilt of sedition and danger to the peace. When his banishment was read to the public in Boston, there was indignation amongst the people at large. Governor Vane would write a petition backing Wheelwright's character and asking the court to reconsider the sentence. But the Puritan population of New England as a whole preferred the status quo and backed the magistrates. Vane's petition was rejected. Seeing this grace movement growing in Boston, Winthrop called for the next elections away from Boston to Cambridge, a town that was filled with stalwart supporters of the court's decision on wheelwright. Governor Vane lost the governorship of New England to Winthrop a few weeks later. Vane would decide his fortunes were better back in England. It may have had a little bit to do with the animosity growing in New England towards him, and a lot to do with the Puritan control of England in the later stage of the English Civil War. With Cotton, Wheelwright, and Vane out of the way, now the court could focus its sole attention squarely on Anne Hutchinson, whom it had now politically isolated. Her trial was a sight to behold, magistrates sitting in the pier, the accused questioned while standing in the middle of the room for nine hours straight, with a vocal gallery full of supporters of Anne Hutchinson. After a long opening statement by the court, Anne was accused of generally disturbing the peace of the commonwealth. Anne asked for a specific legal charge to be placed against her. Governor Winthrop insisted the court had already given that to her. Then Winthrop presented circumstantial evidence, which she refuted the validity of. This included her association with her brother-in-law, Wheelwright. This was simply guilt by association that she must have been a co-conspirator in his sedition. Anne rejected the very notion insisting that her relationship with the men in her life was a matter of her conscience, not something to be debated in public by this court. She needed no defense for being Wheelwright's sister-in-law. Then the magistrates attacked her conventicles, that it was understood, in unwritten rule, that once a certain size was gathered, it required the work of an educated and appointed member of the clergy. She responded with a quote from the book of Titus 2, 3-5. through Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way of life, not to be slanders or addicts of too much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can train the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, and to be subject to their husbands, so that no one will malign the word of God. Winthrop responded with Timothy, I permit not a woman to teach, but to be in silence. Over the hours of theological debate, she rebutted the magistrates, showing that she was at least evenly matched in scriptural knowledge with them. Anne asserted that in private groups, women had the right to discuss, argue, and debate theological matters themselves, rejecting the notion that a woman has no stake in religious matters of the family. And she added that conventicles were an accepted and encouraged practice in the English Puritan church congregations. As Anne rebuffed those charges, the magistrates shifted to attacking her for teaching with too much focus on the covenant of grace, accusing her of violating the fifth commandment a failure to respect the father's clergy of the commonwealth. She mocked them openly in court, asking if her name need be printed in the Bible itself to enable her to teach it. And she pointed to the Bible in the room and asked, must I show my name within it? Winthrop warned her, that they were the judges in this court. She told them they could do nothing to harm her, for she was in the hands of her eternal savior. Because of Anne's strength in scripture, they moved to attacking her as a person and her non-conformity to cultural expectations of the time, that she was a better husband than wife and a preacher than a hero and a magistrate than a subject. This might sound like a compliment today, but in the Commonwealth that prized conformity, this was a dangerous accusation. Then they said that they had talked with the clergy that testified to her shocking bluntness and public criticism over the skills of the clergy's Commonwealth. She asked for these unspecified clergy to sign their testimony into the court. The magistrates backed off this angle of attack for the moment. They did get her to admit that she was critiquing clergy. She would say that she never said that the New England clergy didn't teach a covenant of grace. All that she had said was that they didn't all teach it as clearly as John Cotton. Governor Winthrop would close the court by linking the day's events with his famous sermon about being the city on the hill, alluding to the necessity for the Commonwealth to follow the directives of leadership or God will break New England's covenant with him. She objected that she was following John Cotton's teaching, a leader of the community. With this, the court would adjourn, leaving an unknown sentence suspended over her head. Winthrop, a few days later, would call Anne into a more private meeting where Governor Winthrop could continue to pressure the admonishment upon her. In that meeting, John Cotton dodged the issue about himself preaching free grace, leaving Anne's statement hanging, that she had just followed his leadership. It was now in doubt leaving the only possibility that she had misinterpreted him, perhaps, and needed to correct her errors to conform. John Cotton would attack Anne to show his newfound conformity. He would say that he was, sorry that she had put comparisons of my ministry between others. Winthrop would also pressure Anne on the idea that she had a personal religious revelation from God. She retorted by quoting Jeremiah forty six twenty eight. Do not fear, Jacob, my servant, for I am with you, declares God. But by saying she was selected by God to give interpretation on scripture, she was going directly against Puritan orthodoxy that only a learned clergy could interpret God's will. Winthrop had found the self-admitted heresy he was looking for. He called for the court to reconvene. When the court was waiting to be convened, many local clergy would publicly denigrate Anne, including John Cotton, who would say publicly that she had done some good, perhaps, and that she was gifted and brilliant in speech of mind. But he then said that her erroneous opinions had spread like a gangrene or a leprosy and infected far and near and will eat out the bowels of this commonwealth. A damning critique for an isolated dissenter the court would decide that this supposed personal revelation was heresy and her role in challenging clergy was an utter subversion of the church's role in conforming the Commonwealth's religious beliefs. They also said that her supposed personal communication with this Holy Spirit, or inner light, might be perceived as a substitute for the word of God in the Bible, and even though Hutchinson never claimed or argued for a laxation on biblical laws or the need for doing works, they decided that her endorsement of this spiritual revelation might be a case for others in the commonwealth to become lax in their observation of the Puritan theology. The court's verdict was banishment. Anne would speak in her own defense. You like to put Lord Jesus Christ from you? If you go on this course, you will bring a curse on you and your posterity. The mouth of the Lord has spoken it. Governor Winthrop would quickly hush the court by announcing that all she professed was instead clearly delusion. Anne was placed under house arrest in her uncle's home. She was not allowed to see her family. So her family prepared to move to another area of New England, somewhere outside of the Puritans' reach. In the meantime, the New England clergy would study all of the testimony about Anne's teachings. Then they would meet with her for nine hours a day in her uncle's home, interrogating her, berating her, all to show her the errors of her ways in hopes of a last repentance, conformity, and submission to the Commonwealth. They had a whole list of errors, but the two main most problematic ones were her erroneous thought that the Holy Spirit could dwell in any person rather than only in a learned scholar, and that works could not be used as evidence and as justification for someone that was among the predestined for salvation. The court also gave Anne's followers in Boston's a choice to publicly recant or to hand over all of their firearms. Seventy men had their weapons confiscated for refusal to recant and conform. Anne's family had moved in advance to Rhode Island and joined the settlement in Portsmouth. When Anne was released from her house arrest and banished by the Puritan court, she had to do this walk 60 miles in the snow from Boston to Portsmouth. She became deathly ill, and all of this likely caused her pregnancy ending with a stillborn. In the 17th century, stillborns were thought to be associated with a weakness of the mother. Winthrop would write to Roger Williams that Anne's stillborn was a just punishment from God. He furthered that the nature of the misshapen fetus, with its rumors of scales and disfigurement and devilish traits, was further proof of her devilry. But Roger Williams was sympathetic to Anne's plight of being banished, and it also would be a great asset to have another settlement in the Rhode Island region. Not only would it bring skilled labor, but many of Hutchinson's group were also somewhat wealthy and middle class and could bring with them wealth for investment into the local communities. He brought their group's attention to the Aquidnick Island and the Narragansett Bay. Williams helped the group negotiate the purchase of the island from the Narragansett, making the needed introductions to Sachem, Canonicus, and Myantinomi. But once settled, avoiding frictions within these small communities was difficult. Anne's family would work with others in Portsmouth to reject the leadership of Coddington. Coddington had helped found Portsmouth, but thought of Portsmouth as his own personal domain— as if he was some type of king. After Cottingham was pushed out, he would start the town of Newport on the other side of Aquitnick Island. On a second attempt, he would become a little more diplomatic with the people of the town and would become freely elected governor. After a few years, though, the shared interests of the two communities would pull them back together into a shared government, a government that would enshrine trial by jury, a lesson that was hard learned by these communities who had experienced the magisterial courts of New England. And in 1641, Anne Hutchinson's husband passed away at the age of 55. And Anne was worried that the incorporation of these two communities on Aquinnik Island could result in her lands being incorporated as part of them too. She decided to take advantage of the land and benefits being offered in the settling areas of New Netherlands. Anne, with her remaining dependent children, left to start a settlement in the New Netherlands. Her settlement would be located near Split Rock. They called this new settlement Pelham, and it was located in today's Bronx, somewhere on the Hutchinson River. That is because in August of 1643, Lenape warriors sacked and killed the inhabitants of Pelham, and it didn't matter that they were English instead of Dutch. The Lenape were in the middle of a war that would later be called the Pig Wars with the Dutch, and they used this excuse of a war to kill whoever they felt like killing, which is so common in wars. It was rumored that the natives came up to Anne's house under peaceful terms and asked her to tie up her dogs, which was normal when native friends arrived, since the natives had a phobic reaction to the English Mastiffs. Once the dogs were all tied up, the Lenape warriors suddenly attacked the inhabitants of Anne's home. When the sachem found out Anne was famous, he added the honorific title to his name, which was normally done when a warrior personally had killed someone who was famous. Thank you for listening to this episode of American Political History. If you want to support the show, please subscribe and leave a five-star rating and share this show with someone you think would enjoy listening. Thank you again until next time.